Chapter 5, The Anatomy of a Poem. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. T.S. Eliot. As in any romance, there are stages of intimacy when you fall in love with the poem. The first step is to get to know everything you can about the one you love. This shouldn't be too hard since new love makes you hunger to learn unstoppable. You want to hear every thought and find the resonance within you. You want to explore every inch of this new body and discover how it touches and awakens your own. What attracted you to this poem? What do you love about it? Where does it draw you into new territory in yourself and the world around you? How does it mirror the questions and knowings in the heart of your life right here, right now? How does it affect your body? And how does it create the special aha that parts the veils of the mundane to allow some bright insight to shine through? Many ingredients combine to work the poem's magic. One of the most powerful is the physical dimension of the poem. The rhythm and sounds, the visual shape on the page, and the way the poem affects your breath and pulse have important consciousness-shifting effects, often without your awareness. There have been many fantastic books published in recent years about prosody, which is the word for the study of the sounds of poetry. Masterful poets such as Mary Oliver, Jane Hirschfield, and Robert Pinksy have put their thoughts to the page, explaining the acoustic technology inside a poem in much greater detail than is my intention here. In this chapter, I will not dwell on the technicalities of poetic forms nor on the language that has developed for naming them. Instead, I want to look at how these physical components of a poem can affect your particular body, mind, and feelings, and how this awareness can be an aid to receiving the poem more deeply and letting its medicine work in you. The body of a poem affects your body, literally. At first, you may only be conscious of the conceptual level, what the words mean to you. But whether you are aware of it or not, your breathing has changed. You are feeling the beat of the poem's rhythm in your blood. You are hearing the song of the words inside you. It is even affecting the subtler pulsations of your cerebrospinal fluid and the waters inside your cells. For instance, as you read the poem, the length of the lines has a physical impact on your eye movements. The eyes are the only part of our bodies that literally touch the brain. Moving the eyes causes ripples in the cerebrospinal fluid that encases the brain and also flows down the center of the spine. This can create biochemical changes that affect consciousness. In the old Popeye shows, the cartoon character Bluto used to hypnotize olive oil with a pocket watch on a chain. The slim heroine would become inexplicably fascinated with the pendulating object until she was entranced and oblivious, whereupon Bluto would proceed to beat up her beloved Popeye. Again, while olive oil moved, her eyes closed and her arms stretched before her like a sleepwalker through some treacherous landscape unscathed. A similar principle, though different motive, informs a number of psychotherapeutic practices such as EMDR, eye movement desensitization, and reprocessing work and radix work. These processes work with eye movement to cause subtle changes in brain chemistry and activity so as to release trauma and affect healing. Thus, reading Stanley Konitz's 
regular short lines if the water were clear enough, if the water were still, but the water is not clear, the water is not still, will cause a different wave motion in the brain than reading Marie Howe's longer lines. Someone or something is leaning close to me now, trying to tell me the one true story of my life. In the movie Sylvia, the young Ted Hughes, already an accomplished poet, is courting Sylvia Plath, recently arrived on the Cambridge University poetry scene. It's magic, he says, speaking of poetry. It's not about magic. It's not like magic. It is magic. Incantations, spells, ceremonies, rituals, what are they? They're poems. So what is a poet? He's a shaman. That's what he is. Or she, Sylvia responds. Regardless of the gender of the spellmaker, a good poem, like the shaman's drum, rattle, and song, changes consciousness. When you enter the world of a poem, whether through reading it, hearing it, or speaking it aloud, you make yourself available to its spell. In the sense that it alters consciousness, it is a spell, but in another sense, it is quite the opposite of a spell. A poem alters consciousness back to its natural state prior to patterning. Instead of a spell, it is a spell breaker. In some ways, we spend most of our lives under a spell. The habits of reaction woven into ourselves by our responses to painful events in our history, as well as more general cultural and family mores, have been entrancing us since we were very young. A poem can pierce this familiar dream and ignite a quickening within. As the poet Pablo Neruda says, and something started in my soul, fever or forgotten wings, and I made my own way, deciphering that fire. The shamanic anatomy of a poem. A constellation of elements creates that quickening. I call this a poem's shamanic anatomy. Poetry's task, like the shaman's, is to melt the veil that separates the visible from the invisible so that you can move back and forth between these worlds. The shaman journeys between the realms, even over the lip of death and back, to bring wisdom and healing from beyond the known. Sometimes she or he uses a drumbeat, a song or poem, or a certain way of breathing to thin the skin between ordinary and non-ordinary realities. Like a shaman's drum, the beat of the poem's rhythm can alter consciousness, opening it beyond its normal limitations. And like a shaman's song, the sounds of the words and the way they echo, rhyme, and chime to each other within the poem can soften the boundaries of ordinary perception, allowing in new levels of awareness and insight. Not only sounds, but also symbols and images play a part in working the poem's consciousness, altering magic. Just as the shaman crosses the threshold between worlds, metaphor carries us out of our ordinary world, where unlike things stay neatly inside their familiar dimensions, to a more mysterious realm where opposites are miraculously recognized as one. Each poem has its own medicine bag of tools that do their work inside the human mind and body. I think of them as breath, drumbeat, song, and image. Breath. In an obscure corner of the August 2nd, 2004 issue of the Time magazine, there is a short article entitled, Does Poetry Make the Heart Grow Stronger? It tells the tale of a group of European researchers who taught volunteers to recite passages from Homer and discovered that the result was an increase in the synchronization of cardiorespiratory patterns that are believed to be favorable to the long-term prognosis of cardiac patients. 
Apparently, speaking lines from the Iliad was much more beneficial than ordinary breathing exercises. A poem changes the patterns of your breathing with its rhythm, line length, and phrasing. This changes the density of oxygen in your blood, which affects your heartbeat as well, heightening the sensations of aliveness in your cells. Together, these effects produce subtle shifts in your biochemistry, which lead to inner states of relaxation or agitation. These states change consciousness, bringing new experience that would be impossible within the confines of habit. For millennia, healers and spiritual teachers in many different cultures have known that to change the breath is not only to change the body, but also to change consciousness. Yogis practice the breath of fire to awaken the mind and energize the body. Buddhist meditators count their breaths. Hindu chants, Jewish davening, and Wiccan songs cause the breath and thus the mind to open to new possibilities. Even the Bible is written in such a way that your breath changes as you read it. Different sections of the scripture have different breaths, different rhythmic phenomena, and different sentence lengths. Some phrases are quite short. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called light night. These lines ask for a shorter, faster breath, like the yogi's breath of fire. Some phrases are extraordinarily long, like at the beginning of Deuteronomy. These be the words which Moses spoke unto all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea. And it continues on and on for quite some time before finally resting. For only a moment in a period, to speak the sentence requires a great wave of breath to carry your voice all the way to the end. One of the most challenging and thrilling poems I have ever spoken aloud is Stanley Knitz's King of the River, which you can find at the end of this chapter. The short lines and long sentences take such powerful possession of my breath that I often find myself almost gasping as I struggle upstream like the salmon in the poem. At times, while I am delivering the poem, I become flushed with heat and I even feel a tingling in my fingertips from the increase of oxygen in my blood due to the rapidity of my breathing. I feel my breath shape-shifting into the wheezing gills of the fish on its mission of death and rebirth. Here are the lines we looked at earlier in this chapter, followed by the rest of the first long action-packed sentence. If the water were clear enough, if the water were still, but the water is not clear, the water is not still, you should see yourself slipped out of your skin, nosing upstream, slapping, thrashing, tumbling over the rocks, till you paint them with your belly's blood, thinned ego, yard of muscle that coils, uncoils. Notice what happens to your breath as you read these lines aloud. Perhaps like me, you may find that the shorter, quicker breaths required to follow Knitz's salmon over the rocks have an effect on your thinking and your sensations. Like the volunteers who recited Homer for their health, you may find this infusion of extra breath has far-reaching effects. Habitual tightness and control dissolve. The body becomes charged with new electricity, through the oxygen-filled physiology, spontaneity, and insight erupt like the passion of the salmon itself. Drumbeat. I remember it well. It was eighth period English class. Outside the sky was frozen white, pregnant with snow. Inside, 
The radiators shrieked and wheezed, and I could hear each tick of the big clock on the back wall in its unbearably slow waltz toward the final bell. The itch of my fishnet stockings under my new kilt was almost unbearable. Miss Eidelstein, in her blue wool suit and sensible shoes, was at the chalkboard, pointing at a line from Romeo and Juliet. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? Each syllable had a chalk mark over it, a little smile shape or its fiercer brother, the downward accent line that looked like a cartoon person's angry eyebrow. Below the line was written, iambic pentameter. We were supposed to be learning about rhythm and poetry. I was learning nothing at all except that I hated poetry and I wished I had worn different stockings to school that day. If Miss Eidelstein had communicated even the tiniest spark of passion for the power and beauty of rhythm in a poem, I would have forgotten my itchy fishnets instantly. But the lesson was so dry and mechanical that I never learned about the meter of a poem, the drumbeat that happens in the play between emphasized syllables, softer syllables, and pauses. And I certainly didn't learn about the magical power uh, imminent within it. It wasn't until three decades later that I put together what I knew about inducting altered states of consciousness through musical rhythm with what I knew about rhythm in a poem. As a therapist and healer, I had explored many portals to non-ordinary consciousness. I had traveled far and wide leading workshops where I guided students in deep breathing exercises that could release memories, emotions, and a cascade of inner visions. To support the process, I had accrued a large collection of music from all over the world, which I used to create environments that helped people let go of their habitual control. The rhythm of music is known as a force of healing and transformation in many cultures. The shaman's wordless chant sings throughout the night in the Achuar Longhouse in the heart of the Ecuadorian rainforest. It carries those gathered on a healing journey between the worlds. The pulse of the Native Americans rattle melts the veil between the sacred and the profane so that the circle in the sweat lodge is transported. The particular beat of a curtain, a hymn, or a bhajan carries the seeker across the threshold of an interior sanctuary and steeps her in devotion. Even the throb of the drum track at the all-night rave enthralls a hundred heartbeats into one so that the blood, breath, brain, and fingertips of every room, everyone in the room all pulse together. So I already knew how rhythm, drumbeat, and breath dissolve the walls between the consciousness and the unconscious. I also recognized the healing possible in those altered states but I had never before realized that the pulse of language itself could enter and change consciousness. Now I saw that rhythm in a poem is like the drumbeat under a piece of music. Just as different drumbeats cause the boundaries of the daily mind to melt, a poem has its own rhythm that changes the consciousness of the reader, listener, and speaker. Human beings are creatures of rhythm. The fluids within our bodies pulse, our hearts throb, our breath comes in rhythmic patterns that change with our emotions. In the womb, we are rocked rhythmically by the cadence of our mother's walk and the throb of her heart. We come out craving a rocking, pulsing, singing world that will carry us into our dreams or swaddle us close to a beating heart or teach us the alphabet and rhythm and rhyme. So rhythm is a powerful force. It can be entrancing. It has been used throughout human history to awaken us or lull us to sleep. 
At times it has been used to possess us. The poet Robert Haas has said, because rhythm has direct access to the unconscious, because it can hypnotize us, enter our bodies and make us move, it is a power, and power is political. Hitler knew this. I have been moved to tears when I heard what I later realized was a Nazi anthem. If you give people enough rhythm, they will feel passion. They don't even have to notice what they're feeling passion about. Rhythm creates entertainment. Entertainment creates passion and movement. And we're not alone in this movement. All of a sudden, everyone within earshot is riding a wave together. Sometimes, we don't even bother to notice where the wave is going. How many times have I felt the goose flesh rise and the heart surge with some unnameable, irrational allegiance as a marching band spouting Susa past amidst flocks of Independence Day floats? What, I had to ask myself, am I being moved by? When I, what am I being moved to? Do I really care about this cause? Or is this music moving me on its own agenda? Something in the undiscriminating organism of me wells up to join the rhythm and yearns toward the fusion it seems to promise. Think for a moment about the lullaby, Rockabye Baby. The beginning is benign enough. Rockabye Baby in the treetop, when the wind, wind blows, the cradle will rock. This regular rhythm and sing-song melody soothed millions of us to sleep when we were small. We fell so deeply asleep that we may never have noticed the danger lurking in the second verse, camouflaged by the same apparently harmless beat. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle, and all. So what is the difference between a rhythm that serves to awaken us and one that puts us to sleep? Beyond the obvious components of motive and purpose, there are clues in the rhythm itself. I pick up a greeting card at the drugstore and read, If you knew how many hearts are touched by everything you do, you know the gratitude and love that's always felt for you. Even though it says many hearts are touched, I'm not touched at all by this little verse. Why is that? The rhythm is unbroken, utterly predictable. There are no surprises. And as Brother David Steindl Rost has said, if it's not surprising, it's not a good poem. A rhythm wakes up when a pattern is established and then broken. The unpredictable enters. We sit up and listen. Emily Dickinson says, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell, they're advertised, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell one's name the live long June to an admiring bog. This poem splits open the seams of the rhythm and spills out into the silence, silences into the unpredictable. The first time I really heard this poem was in 1994 as I was grappling with my depression. I'd known of it for as long as I can remember, but it became a teacher during that painful period of my life. It came to me by way of a wise friend from whom I'd sought help. You're always in groups where you are a big fish in a little pond, he said to me, referring to the loneliness I was feeling. You're too used to being special. You think you need to be, I think you need to be a nobody for a while. And he took a pad of paper and wrote down the lines of this poem. Learn it by heart and recite it every morning like mantra, he suggested. Pretend it is a holy phrase given to you by some enlightened guru. I think you'll see some changes begin to happen. As I followed his guidance, I discovered that this little poem began to have a powerful effect on me. 
It got me to question why I wanted to be somebody and was afraid of being nobody. And it wasn't just the meaning that was working this magic. The rhythm of this poem worked in a very particular way to convey its message directly into my body. My friend was right. I'd spent most of my life magnetized by wanting to be somebody, thinking that was the key to life. The stereotype of being nobody was boring and empty, yet the energy of this poem is exactly the opposite. The rhythm of the stanza about being nobody is wildly innovative and unexpected, while in the second stanza about being somebody, the beat is as predictable as the greeting card. Clearly, within the world of this poem, if you're nobody, each time you enter yourself, it is a new experience, like the rhythm of the lines. Nobody is free, unconfined by a name or even by a rhythm. Being somebody, on the other hand, is as predictable as a rhyme on a greeting card. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog. What exactly is the difference between the rhythm in Dickinson's poem and in the greeting card? Why does one wake us up and the other lull us into unconsciousness? A steady rhythm runs through Dickinson's lines, like the drummer's rhythmic tap on the hi-hat during the trumpet solo. But her words dance in and out of the meter, a jazz musician's riff. They cannot be contained. It is often the friction between two unlike things happening at the same time that creates a moment of surprise, allowing space for new insight and creativity. In this case, it is the friction between the expected rhythm and the actual beat of the language of the poem. In the poem on the card, I find none of this friction. The rhythm of the lines proceed, proceeds as expected. Four strong regularly, regularly spaced beats in one line and three in the next. You'd know the gratitude and love that's always felt for you. It is the same rhythm that runs under Dickinson's lines, but there it rubs against the fitful, almost chaotic beats in the actual words. I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? As I return to the poem each day, an ancient and compulsive striving to be somebody started to unclench within me, and I began to taste the possibility of simply being without definition or goal. Song. Fiction works its magic in a poem through the song and the sounds of the words as well as through the drumbeat. Words rub together, chiming back and forth to each other across the lines. The sound of a word hangs in the air and resonates with the subsequent words that contain a similar sound. There is a plethora of ways that words there is a plethora of ways that words can sing to one another. The most obvious of these are repetition and rhyme. For instance, the mesmerizing power of Knitz's poem, King of the River, comes in part through the repeated variations on the first lines of each stanza. The themes change from stanza to stanza, moving from if the water were clear enough to if the knowledge were given you to if the power were granted you to if the heart were pure enough. But each stanza opens with a line that repeats some of the words, sentence structure, and rhythm of the first lines of previous stanzas. So each new version has the others singing inside it and expanding the meaning. We come to know these lines like the refrain of a song. There are sub subtler symphonies, too, going on in most poems. A sound in one word may be echoed in several others. For example, consider the repeated ing sounds as Knutza's salmon fights his way upstream, flapping, thrashing, tumbling. 
Can you hear their momentum building to splash full force into the phrase over the rocks through the two O sounds and smack into the final harsh K? Or try following music of the us sounds as they slide and surge through the first stanza with the struggling fish. See yourself slipped out of your skin, nosing upstream. Perhaps like me, you learned about alliteration, consonants, and assonance in the St. Eighth Greek English class that drilled you on the names of the different meters. What I didn't learn there was that these tools are actually alchemical implements of consciousness weaving the body and mind together and affecting both in ways beyond cognitive control. When the sound of one word echoes or chimes with a previous word, you are semi-consciously hearing both words at once in the friction and resonance between the sounds. For instance, listen to the repeated R sounds at the ends of words in these lines from the last stanza of King of the River. If the heart were pure enough, but it is not pure, you would admit that nothing compels you anymore. Nothing at all abides but nostalgia and desire, that two-way ladder between heaven and hell on the threshold of the last mystery of the brute absolute hour we have looked into the eyes of your creature self, which are glazed with madness, and you say he is not broken, but endures, limber, limber and firm in the state of his shining, forever inheriting his salt kingdom from which he has banished forever. Can you hear the R sounds echoing down through the lines of the stanza? Pure in the first line sings to the not pure in the second. Both are echo echoing inside the word anymore in the fifth line. The word desire in the seventh line takes up the song of the R's, which courses on through the rest of the poem through the words ladder, mystery, hour, your, creature, are, endures, line, limber, firm, forever, and again, forever. Can you sense how these repeated sounds amplify and complexify the power of each subsequent word, as if they were infusing them not only with the tumult of sound, but with all the accumulating meanings as well? Unconsciously, you hear the word pure inside the word anymore, and the whole river of resonating words inside the final forever. Some cumulative, inarticulate experiences conveyed more like the felt knowing that comes from music than the pragmatic meanings we usually ascribe to language. If you decide, then, the pragmatic meanings we usually ascribe to language, if you decide to learn a poem by heart, noticing the sound play laced through it can help you weave the lines into your memory. And when you forget words and phrases, discovering exactly why they are placed where they are in the symphony of the poem can help you to retrieve them, as I will explore further in Chapter 5. Image. The image poet Jane Hirschfield says summons the body into a poem. Neruda's fever or forgotten wings beat inside my own chest, connecting me with his moment of poetic discovery. Dickinson's frog telling its name to an admiring bog instills in my body a sense of her repulsion at being a public somebody. I can graphically sense Knitz's king salmon inside my very cells when I know myself as a yard of muscle that coils and coils. It is the body that feels the images in a poem. 
Try tracking the sensations that arise as you speak the short Dickinson poem quoted above. Notice that you are feeling more than the rhythms and sounds, yet you are also being moved by the image. Without that frog, the sensate experience of the poem would be a very different one. An image, especially one that surprises you with its capacity to evoke and evoke rich and unexpected connections, defies your patterns of perception. It undoes them through a simple startling rightness that invokes your whole being into a moment of pure experience. This moment, the green fists of the peonies are getting ready to break my heart. Mary Oliver's image moves into my body. I not only see the peonies, I feel the clenched fists of them in my own fingers. I can't help but viscerally connect the words fist, break, and heart in a vector that catches my breath in an exquisite confusion of beauty and pain. This happens not only because the image is from the world of flesh, rock, and tree, but also because in the convergence of two unlike things, the brain simply cannot sustain its tendency toward either-or thinking. Peonies, frogs, and bogs are raw matter, yet each is connected with a rather heady concept. The peonies are breaking the poet's heart, the frog is public, and the bog is admiring. The mind cannot make sense of these pairings in a linear way. A delicious ambiguity is born. This can be a challenge, particularly in the Western world, where ambiguity is often avoided and there seems to be a premium on rational analysis and knowing exactly where we stand. One person wants to say, stay safely in the mind and avoid the wet underworld of feelings. Another wants to only swim in a sea of emotion, never touching the dry shores of reason. We want to divide everything into black or gold, good or bad. We want to divide everything into black or white, good or bad, right or wrong. As George W. Bush told the world in a news conference in November 2001, you're either with us or against us. But by its very nature, an image unifies the polarities. Neruda's forgotten wings ask the listener to think and feel the same time. It is neither right nor wrong that in our salmon selves, we are a yard of muscle in Knitz's words. Even the right brain and the left brain are woven together when an image appears in a poem, for it is the right brain that receives forms and the left brain that processes language. When a form arrives in language, the whole brain is summoned into the movement. An additional alchemy takes place when images appear as metaphors, figures of speech in which a word or phrase usually designating one thing is used to represent another. Metaphors are the cones of poetry. A cone is a paradoxical question used in Zen Buddhism as a tool for attaining enlightenment. Like the famous cone, what is the sound of one clapping? A metaphor is a logical impossibility designed to shatter the limitations of the mind. It brings together two experiences that cannot coexist or be made to fit into the mind's habitual categories. Many other mystical practices call on the power of converging opposites to open the mind's circuitry. Kabbalistic scholar Jason, Jason Shulman says, when we are capable of vividly holding opposites within our body, which is to say not only as a mental construct, but as a sensation or sense of physical knowing within the body, the third thing that frees us appears as a gift. 
our work is not finished until the moment we say, life and death are one in God, and bring those two poles closer and closer within our mind and body until they merge. Then a new freedom, palpable and alive, is born. In yoga, nidra, a practice derived from the ancient tantric wisdom of the East, a similar process of holding opposites is found. Richard Miller explains, the ego mind moves linearly. It focuses in one direction or it focuses in another direction, but it cannot move simultaneously in two directions at once. For instance, in this moment, be aware of the space out in front of your body. You probably take yourself as someone who is attending in this linear direction. But watch what happens to your sense of being a doer if I ask you to simultaneously to be simultaneously aware of the space out in front of you and behind the back of your body. The mind becomes silent and the sense of being a doer drops away while you experience yourself expanding in a multi-dimensional spaciousness. The thinking mind has to stop when we invite it to be simultaneously open in different directions. Then when the mind is quiet, we taste our spacious, nonlinear nature. In Knitz's poem, King of the River, the tension between images is constant. There is a layer there is layer upon layer of metaphor. You would see yourself slipped out of your skin, nosing upstream. Surely I, the reader, am a person, yet I am being addressed as a salmon within the first lines of the poem. Human and fish collide and both disappear in the torrent of experience. My favorite phrase, the one that startles my mind every time I speak or hear it, is thinned ego. The joining of the wild, water-bound fins of the fish with that which is driest and least primitive in a human dumbfounds and excites me. I cannot contain both, and at, last, at least for a moment, I break open, perhaps into a state more akin to the salmon the poet has dared me to become. As in Naomi Shihab Nye's poem, Kindness, this is a direct confrontation with the power of ambiguity. At a panel discussion at the Dodge Poetry Festival in 2002, aptly entitled Poetry as Disruptive Seed, Poetry as Centering Force, Robert Haas, then America's Poet Laureate, said, Poems must move in two directions at once, enchantment and disenchantment, life and death, knowing and having no idea. The poet Mark Doty added, yes, a good poem is the yoking of polarities. A poem that doesn't move us is usually a poem that does not feel as complicated as life. Knitz's words challenge the pragmatic mind, flooding awareness with many layers of sense that flow in all directions, like the rushing current the salmon swims. I remember arriving at my poetry group one rainy winter morning, still bleary-eyed in spite of having infused myself with two cups of Earl Grey tea. Our host's apartment smelled a little of mold. The stuffing from the armchair I was curled into was seeping out of the ratty fabric and attaching itself to my new black pants. I was wondering if I could make up some excuse to climb into my car and head back to bed. 
The meeting began with a member of the circle reading that week's poem from The New Yorker. To this day, I don't remember what the poem was about, but toward the end, I heard through my fog a whole bouquet of crows came apart outside the window. Suddenly, I was shocked awake, completely present and energized. The extraordinary blending of images had completely stopped my mind. I had to drop my, drop my toxic load of compulsive thoughts, sit up, and listen. Whoever heard those words put together... A bouquet cannot be crows, but I knew exactly what the poet Sharon Olds experienced when she saw that. For at least a moment, logical thought had stopped, and I was one harmonious wave where sensing was feeling, was knowing, was being in this magic show of bursting blacknessness on sky. King of the River If the water were clear enough, if the water were still, but the water is not clear, the water is not still, you would see yourself slipped out of your skin, nosing upstream, slapping, thrashing, tumbling over the rocks till you paint them with your belly's blood, thinned ego, yard of muscle that coils and coils. If the knowledge were given you, but it is not given, for the membrane is clouded with self-deceptions, and the iridescent image swims through a mirror that flows, you would surprise yourself in that other flesh, heavy with milk, bruised, battering toward the dam that lifts the orgiastic pool. Come, bathe in these waters, increase and die. If the power were granted you to break out of your cells, but the imagination fails and the doors of the senses close on the child within, you would dare to be changed as you are changing now. Into the shape you dread beyond the merely human, a dry fire eats you. Fat drips from your bones. The flutes of your gills discolor. You have become a ship for parasites. The great clock of your life is slowing down, and the small clocks run wild. For this you were born. You have cried to the wind and heard the wind's reply, I did not choose the way. The way chose me. You have tasted the fire on your tongue till it is swollen black with a prophetic joy. Burn with me. The only music is time. The only dance is love. If the heart were pure enough, but it is not pure, you would admit that nothing compels you any more. Nothing at all abides but nostalgia and desire, that two-way ladder between heaven and hell on the threshold of the last mystery. At the brute absolute hour, you have looked into the eyes of your creature self, which are glazed with madness, and you say he is not broken, but endures, limber and firm in the state of his shining forever inheriting his salt kingdom from which he is banished forever. Stanley Knuth. Chapter 6. Writing Poems on Your Bones. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Derek Walcott. Nine times out of ten, when I tell people that I love to learn poems by heart, they say, I wish I could join you. I've always wanted to be able to remember a poem, but I have a terrible memory. I can't even remember where I left the car keys. Neither can I. Nor can I remember the name of my neighbor's Shih Tzu, or if the plural of fish is fish or fishes. And of course, it's getting worse. At the passage of time seems to corrode the edges of my brain,
street names, multi-syllabic words, and what I was going to say just before the phone rang are all dissolving in the brine. Luckily, these inevitable little lapses have nothing to do with remembering a poem, because learning a poem, because learning by heart is different from memorization. It doesn't require fierce discipline, concentration, exercises, or even a good memory. All it requires is the love of a poem, the curiosity to get to know it intimately, and the willingness to let it help you know yourself. You might have noticed by now that I try to avoid the word memorize. For me and many others, I have met the word reeks of all sorts of horrific moments from childhood. Compulsory conjugations of Spanish verbs and rote recitations of the Gettysburg Address. This approach seems more like conquering a poem than entering into a relationship with it. Even the suffix eyes, which means to make, gives a sense of enforcing one's will over something privatized, computerized, terrorized, memorized. Learning by heart is a partnership, not a conquest. It is about entering into a relationship with a poem in which, as in any real relationship, you are changed by the other and the other is changed by you. If anyone is conquered into in this partnership, it is you, as you surrender to the poem's guidance and allow it to lead you into unknown territory. Ultimately, it is not as much about the achievement of having the poem in your memory as it is about where the process of learning takes you. Learning by heart is a wonderful phrase because it holds within it the invitation to read something with your whole self, not just your mind, and to take it into your body with your breath. To learn it with your feelings and the insights that spring not from your head, but from your very core. The ancient Greeks believed that memory actually resided in the physical heart along with intelligence and feelings. Our word record, usually, usually used in reference to some sophisticated piece of technology, echoes back to the, that wisdom. It is built of the pref, prefix re, meaning again, the, and the word core, which means heart. A mechanical recording device is actually an artificial replica of that organic chalice of memory we all have, the heart. Even after history books took the place of epic poetry as the memory bank of the community, learning and delivering poems by heart was standard practice among poets and lay people alike. This was not only because there were few in poetry's early audience who could, ha who could read, but also because it went without saying that poems were devised to be spoken by heart. Only then could the full life of the creation be breathed into being. As poet and essayist David Barber tells us, poetry was memory's darling. In ways we now can scarcely imagine, memory breathed life into poetry, and poetry in turn made memory something truly, truly memorable. The art of memory has seen as was seen as a sacred endeavor until at least the late 16th century, especially among poets. Simonides of Sios, a poet who lived around 550 BC, is said to have originated the art of memory by developing a way of housing veritability, unlimited information in what he called a memory palace. This is one of several highly sophisticated techniques developed in the ancient world and taught in schools of philosophy, rhetoric, and meditation. Ancient and medieval people reserved their awe for memory, says Mary Caruthers, author of the Book of Memory. Their greatest geniuses they describe as people of superior memories. 
Among these are Cicero, St. Thomas, Aquinas, and Aristotle. For Plato, the art of memory was a mystical pursuit in which the memory of the material world interacts with the memory of the realities which the soul knew before its descent here below. True knowledge consists in fitting the imprints from sense impressions onto the mold or imprint of the higher reality of which the things here below are reflections. In ancient Greece, individuals known as rhapsodes learned Homer's Odyssey and Iliad by heart. Not only did they perform these epic poems as part of the Olympic Games and other competitions, they were held as oracles among the people. For a fee, you could ask the rhapsode a question and receive a personal recitation of a passage from Homer as a form of guidance or divination. Through the work of Italian philosopher Giordano Bruno in the Renaissance, classical techniques of memory became the intense magical religious core of the Hermetic tradition. Bruno, who was burned at the stake for his occult teachings, tells how the god Hermes gave him a book containing the secrets of the art. Through these practices, it was said, one could learn the roads to heaven and transform the stuff of the material plane. This equation of the art of memory with the wisdom of the soul is essential to the practice of learning by heart. The mystical co component of the art of memory has been woven into all of the major religions of the world. Monks and mystics who memorize the Bible, Muslims who learn the Quran from cover to cover, rabbis who cantillate, sing the Torah like ancient bards and modern-day griots may be gleaning some ineffable alchemical benefit from holding these tracks of truth when within them, even beyond the practical reward of remembering and reciting such wisdom. For the Buddha's first students, too, remembering was a transformative whole-body experience. They could neither read nor write, so they recorded the Buddha's utterances by learning them by heart. Years later, this practice of committing key phrases to memory became known in Tibetan Buddhism as writing on the bones. What a perfect phrase to describe the power of taking in a text so deeply that it seems to reside in the cells of your body. Yongi Mingyur Rinpoche, a modern Buddhist master who combines spiritual teachings with neuroscience, speaks of how focused attention has been shown to contribute to the creation of new connections between brain cells, which in turn determine how other nerve, nerve organ, and muscle cells respond to thoughts, feelings, and sensations. So a holy text or your favorite poem, when written on your bones, may even reroute your bioelectric bio circuit circuitry, literally transforming the way you respond to life. This has been my experience. When I learned my first few poems by heart on that long straight highway back in 1994, I had no idea I would end up with over a hundred poems in my memory. I thought I'd learned six or eight of my favorite and that would be that, but then I got a taste of the fruits of my labor. Of course, there was the thrill of being able to speak a poem to a friend or to myself at a crucial time. But even more compelling was a subtle, pervasive shift in my whole way of meeting the world. This was quite obvious because most of my poem learning was done en route to visit my parents in the home where I grew up, a place where some of my least appealing behaviors tended to run rampant. Patterns of childish reaction seemed to be inscribed in the very air inside that house. My withdrawn silence at the dinner table or the way I could become a pet, as petulant as a four-year-old whenever I felt criticism coming my way. 
Now, instead of climbing up and giving whoever seemed to be threatening me the look, I sometimes found a poem blossoming into my consciousness was a perfect medicine for me. You do not have to be good, Mary Oliver would whisper in my inner ear, or so as long as you have not experienced this to die and so to grow, you are only a troubled guest on this dark earth. Ghosts would warn my prideful temper. It was as if he, as if I had a throng of guides within me, calibrated to show up at the perfect moment, 24 hours a day. A poem remembered is a powerful thing, for what is poetry but the language of the true self, the self that unstoppably sings its note under all the encrustations of confusion and contrivance, under all the costumes of culture, family drama, and creed, to write it on your bones is, as Mingyur Rinpoche confer, confirms, to rewire the synaptic circuitry of your nervous system into alignment, in alignment with your deepest nature. What is memory? Well, an ancient Greek would tell you that your memories live in your beating heart and an early Buddhist could read to you from scriptures written on his bones. A modern scientist can't tell you much with can't tell you much with certainty about what memory is or how it works. It is quite remarkable that with all the information we humans have accrued by studying our own bodies, no one has conclusively cracked the mystery of memory. Of course, there are throngs of techniques and even surgical procedures, not to mention medications, vitamins, herbal concoctions, and foods whose purpose is to enhance memory. But no one can tell you for sure its size or shape or capacity or exactly why it behaves the way it does. As British memory researcher Martin Conway says, we just don't know. But there have to be some unanswered things left in research, otherwise it's not worth doing. Though they may not have found a way to measure the capacity of your memory, scientists have discovered in recent years that exercising it can be as important as exercising the body. It turns out that memory exercises stave off dementia and other forms of mental loss. Books, flashcards, and classes in the field of neurobiotics, neurobics, Books, flashcards, and classes in the field of neurobics have flooded the market with do-it-yourself memory workout programs for the aging brain. You may be muttering under your breath by now that this is as all well and good for some people, the ones who actually have an innate proclivity for memory, but you are not one of them, never have been, and never will be. I have heard this or versions of it from a startlingly high percentage of people. When I do, I feel the kind of heartbreak that a singing teacher must feel when once again she encounters a music lover who was told in sixth grade, as I was, to just mouth the words. I spent three decades believing I couldn't sing until Chloe Goodchild, a vocalist whose work is appropriately called Your Naked Voice, unlocked the cage of my history and set my voice flying into the present moment. Now I'll blurt, bellow, and serenade at the least pro provocation provocation and though i'm not always singing the expected notes it turns out i am definitely not tone deaf anyone can learn a poem by heart perhaps your natural capacity is obscured by memories of painful attempts in your past and projected failures in your future but i've never met anyone who couldn't eventually learn poems with ease one of my best friends, Hannah, was certain that she had been born with some basic piece missing where the capacity to remember words was supposed to be. 
She often bemoaned the irony that she, the woman with the worst memory in the world, has, was friends with me, whose passion and profession was learning poems by heart. It was all the more painful for her because she had loved poetry since she was a child and longed to be able to speak it from memory. Hannah's father, an immigrant from Germany, had dozens of poems committed to memory. He would recite every night at the dinner table. He was a difficult man, and there had been painful conflicts between him and Hannah throughout her childhood. But when he spoke poetry, Hannah melted. In fact, the whole family was transformed. To the young girl, it felt as if the perpetual harshness between them miraculously dissolved, and for the short duration of the poem, the family shared a kind of holy communion. But her father's gift had a dark side. Whenever anyone else attempted to deliver a poem, the whip of his criticism and contempt lashed out instantaneously. Hannah had seen him mortify her mother on many occasions. Her favorite aunt, his sister, actually knew many more poems than he, but rarely spoke them for this reason, and never when her brother was in the house. So even though Hannah was magnetized by the beauty of his recitations and would have loved to try it herself, she froze in fear before she even started. Imagining the humiliation of her own failure was enough for her. She didn't even want to try. This fear stayed with her through school and college. Every time she was asked to commit something to memory, she found an excuse to opt out of the experience. As an English major, this was sometimes a problem, separating her from her peers, but it seemed a small price compared to the certain humiliation of her inevitable failure. She came to truly believe that there was a defect in her brain that made it impossible for her to learn anything by heart. It was no accident that she and I became friends. Part of what drew us together was our kindred craving for the soul language of poetry and our love of how it took us below the surface of our lives. Hannah introduced me to some of the poems that would become my greatest teachers, from T.S. Eliot, Rumi, and Rilke. I found in her a listener whose hunger for hearing the poems I knew by heart was almost as great as my love of speaking them. It wasn't easy for her to tell me that she believed she had a disability in exactly the area that was one of my greatest strengths. It was even harder for her to begin to admit to herself and to me the pain and longing that still roiled underneath this belief. Of course, I instantly offered to walk with her through her fear to do whatever it took to help her reclaim what I knew was her innate ca capacity, but for years she refused my offer. I don't remember if it was she or I who discovered the tale of Cadman, the first known poet of the English language. The story, which is part history and part legend, is that Cadman was an extremely shy laborer who lived around AD 660. Some say he had a stutter and was ashamed to speak. When all the workers gathered to pass the harp and recite poems to entertain each other at the end of the day, Cadman would flee, mumbling something about the cows in the barn needing to be tended. One night, as he lay in the straw among the beasts he trusted, an angel came to him in a dream and ordered him to recite a poem. He refused, explaining that he had a handicap and was unable to speak or speak, remember or speak first. The angel responded, however that may be, you shall recite to me. When Cadmon asked what he should recite, he was told to sing of the beginning of created things. Thereupon, Cadmon began to spontaneously speak verses praising God and creation. He woke with perfect memory of his poem, which he shared with his fellow workers. They celebrated, ex exclaiming to the abbess of the local monastery about his gift. 
She challenged him to recite more poems based on passages from holy texts. Soon he became known far and wide for his gift of reciting poems in praise of God. The Anglo-Saxon scholar Bede, considered the father of English history, says of Cadman, he never could compose any trivial or idle song, but as he recognized that it was God who had opened his lips, therefore till his dying day did his mouth show forth his praise. My friend Hannah identified with the stuttering Cadman. She knew that in his story was a message pointing right at her. Like him, she fled when it came her turn to recite. Like him, she felt safer with the animals than with a circle of humans jockeying to press other, impress others with a poem. And like him, she had a profound reverence for the invisible unknown, which Cadman called God, and she herself had no name for but the mystery. Her whole life had been devoted to listening for that vast reality beyond the tangible world. This devotion infused all her relationships and her work as a spiritual guide to others. But when she thought about learning a poem by heart, her ancient terrors crowded out the memory of what really mattered to her. Suddenly, she was a child again at her father's table. From that perspective, speaking poetry was not about communicating what she cared about, or as in Catamon's case, praising God. It was about survival. It was about a personal mastery or personal defeat. Either she would be successful and conquer the poem and whoever might be listening, or, more probably, she would sink into panic and veritable quicksand of horrific memories. Cadmon's example gave her the fire to face her demons. She asked me to help her learn a poem by heart. She chose a few lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, lines she had loved since high school. At first, she panicked each time she was unable to remember the next word. You see, I can't do this. I was right. But with each stumbling, I assured her that anyone would go through the same process of forgetting a word, searching for it, finding it, losing it again, and so on. She wasn't special. She didn't have a unique handicap. The only difference between her and others was that she got terrified when she forgot a word and they didn't. While others saw their faltering as an invitation to get to know the poem and themselves a little better, she found herself gasping for breath in a wave of painful memories and self-annihilating assumptions. Slowly, with each forgotten word, Hannah's panic lessened. She began to realize that she had unconsciously chosen a passage from Eliot that had, at its heart, the same lesson that Cadamon had taught her. Eliot writes, You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. For Hannah, the art of remembering and speaking a poem had to come from her devotion to something greater than herself, the same devotion from which Cadmon's words were finally ignited, otherwise she would indeed fail. She had to kneel where prayer had been valid. She was simply unable to learn a poem from her ego's need to prove that she could, or from the little child's longing to impress her father, or from the vice grip of a conquering mind that wanted to verify, instruct herself, or inform curious curiosity to carry report. For Hannah, learning a poem by heart had to be an act of prayer. As she appreciated this, the tyranny of her perfectionism began to melt away and with it her terror of making a mistake. She actually began to enjoy the process. A bit by bit, she worked the poem into her memory. In reality, it only took about 40 minutes, though she felt as if it were a lifetime. When she finally had it, she was giddy as a little girl, dancing through the house, reciting the lines to the mirror, to me, and to Rumi, the cat. 
but early the next morning she called me in dismay. I've forgotten it. I woke up this morning and I cannot even remember the first line. See, I'll never be able to learn a poem by heart. She was truly upset on the edge of tears. For her, this failure had all sorts of meanings. That there was indeed something wrong with her, that she would never be able to know a poem by heart, that she couldn't heal the wounds left by her father's contempt, which were made more painful because of the longing he instilled in her for the communion of poetry. When I told her that the same thing happens to me the morning after I learn a poem, she was silent. You? You, you who know so many poems? What do you mean? I explained that I forget a new poem several times a day until it is firmly embedded in what I call the third chamber of memory. It usually takes me a week or with a longer poem several weeks before I have the lines dependably in my inner archive. But every day the process gets easier and easier, more and more enjoyable. I begin to actually look forward to the breakdowns because over the years I've learned that forgetting a line or a word can be the most valuable part of the process. Each time I forget, the poem is calling me beyond myself, inviting me to some experience that is new and unfamiliar. If the words had fit in with my habitual self, they would have been easily absorbed into my memory. The places I forget chart a map showing where the poem is calling me into a new territory. They offer me the gift of forgetting, which I will explore further in the next chapter. Hannah's adventurous spirit was ignited by this prospect. As her curiosity grew, the voltage of her panic dimmed. Within a week, she knew her chosen lines by heart and had even spoken them as part of a lecture before a large gathering. Her tenacious belief in her defective mind was crumbling. Eagerly, she picked the next poem to learn, this time a bit longer. Why Mira can't come back to her old house by the 16th century Hindu mystical poet Murabai. Her fear did resurrect periodically through the years, usually after she hadn't thought of a poem for a few months. Reaching into her memory and not finding it there, she would panic again. But once she realized how quickly these seemingly lost poems could be reinscribed on her bones, even this last vestige of her painful history dissolved. Whatever beliefs you hold about the limitations of your old memory, I urge you to question them. As scientists and mystics will concur, memory is a great mystery, and whatever you believe to be true about it, as could what about it could as easily be fiction. Who knows how vast your memory is or what it can hold? Science's latest theory is that a memory is a pattern of synaptic connections in the brain. There are about a thousand trillion such connections possible. That means there is the potential for 30 times as much to be stored in your brain as is stored in the entire Library of Congress. In the pages that follow, you will find no techniques for remembering poems or anything else. Throughout history, people have memorized gargantuan amounts of information by using all manner of memory tricks. You can associate words with colors or visualize them in specific locations or connect them with random images or make acronyms of their first letters. There are even annual world memory championships in which people win recognition and lots of money by remembering unbelievably long lists of numbers or names by way of one technique or another. Learning a poem by heart is different. Just as you need no technique to remember a really great kiss, a lot of your favorite foods, or a mystical experience, you need no tricks of memory to recall a poem you love. It happens through allowing yourself to be touched and changed by the creative relationship. As Plato might say, when the words on the page are connected with the wisdom of the soul, memory happens. 
I invite you to learn a poem by heart. Write it on your bones, plant it in your synapses, give it a home in your memory palace. The question of exactly what memory is and why it behaves as it does can remain unanswered, swathed in the wonder that the Greek, ancient Greeks may have felt when they worshipped it as a goddess. Menmosine, the great mother of the muses. The four chambers of memory. Researchers tend to break memory into two parts, short-term and long-term. While I do not know what is scientifically true, when learning a poem, I have found it much more useful to think of memory in four increments, not just two. I call these the four chambers of memory. The word chamber has resonance with the anatomy of the human heart, the four cavities through which the blood passes on its way to and from, nourishing the cells of the body. But unlike the chambers of the heart, which follow a circular path, the chambers of memory are more like the caverns of an underground temple. Each is deeper in the earth of memory, each is further along the path of a relationship with a poem, and each is a different world, offering its own particular gifts and challenges. The final chamber has a quality of everlastingness about it, like the inner sanctum of an underground temple where the remains of the dead are laid to rest for eternity. Like your ABCs and the nursery rhymes you've never forgotten, a poem that makes it all the way to the fourth chamber will probably be with you forever. It is one such underground temple that became the inspiration for my understanding of these realms of memory. On an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, there is an ancient burial cave cut by hot lava. When you drop down through the secret hole in an overgrown pasture, you find yourself in a huge cavern whose mouth opens out wide to the sea. Often you can see spinner dolphins in the distance leaping and twirling above the waves, or in the winter months, the spouting of whales. Threading from this open chamber back into the darkness where there is a network of tunnels. By flashlight, you can navigate into the blackest, most silent spaces imaginable. Sometimes you have to crawl on your belly, slithering between huge rocks. Then suddenly, the tube opens into one of several large chambers. Each is further underground. Each seems to have its own purpose and character. One has three large creams, which are piles of stones signifying a holy place. One is empty, but for the petroglyphs carved by someone who lived at least six centuries ago. The innermost sanctum is so far inside the earth, you have to crawl through the pitch black tunnels for almost a mile to get there. I fell in love with this cave. It gave me an outer experience of what I had found to be the interior terrain of memory. The four phases of learning a poem were the cave's four chambers. Just as each chamber of the cave was deeper in the earth and required a deeper commitment to get to it, each of these inner chambers was deeper in my heart. The first chamber of memory, the vestibule. The first chamber is commonly called short-term memory. It is one of the brilliant features included in the basic package of the human mind. Like a vestibule, between the outer world and the deeper recess of the inner life, short-term memory is where everything lands for a moment before being either taken in or dropped out of your awareness. Through short-term memory, you can look at a poem and, looking away, remember a few words or phrases for a brief period of time before they either disappear into thin air or are taken more deeply into your heart. Thanks to short-term memory, I can safely learn poems in my favorite study hall, the car. The car is often littered with poems strewn on the passenger's seat or stuffed alongside it. 
pressed between the sun visor and the roof or blowing around in the back seat. Holding a tattered piece of paper curled around the steering wheel, I can snatch a line or phrase when I'm stopped at a light or in traffic and return my eyes to the road in a split second. That short, quick, superficial memory holds the words for me just long enough to let me taste them, roll them around in my mouth, speak them aloud or silently. I repeat them, noticing everything I can about my own response, as if I were a scientist dropping the words into the alchemical test tube of my inner state. I watch for any reaction from within. What rises to greet them? What is my gut response, feelings, insights, physical sensations? As I do this, I'm naturally noticing elements of the poem I had not been aware of before. Deeper levels of meaning, details of rhythm, song, and breath, in other words, the poem's shamanic anatomy. The second chamber of memory, precious difficulty. As soon as any visceral, personal connection is made with the line, Shazam! It lands solidly in the second chamber of memory. The connection might be an insight or emotion evoked by the words, or it might be a reaction to some aspect of the shamanic anatomy of the poem, the rhythm, breath, music, or imagery, and the response doesn't have to be pleasurable. Sometimes it is actually my discomfort that carries the phrase through the portal and drops it into the next chamber. For instance, in a piercing poem called Thanks, W.S. Marin writes, With the crooks in the office, with the rich and fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying, thank you, thank you. His unbashed political rant startled me. Even though I agreed with his sentiments, the bald truthfulness of Marin's feelings felt like a punch in the stomach. I had never heard him speak with such overt outrage. The very shock of the encounter locked the lines into my memory. The second chamber of memory is a precious, difficult territory. It is precious because the poem will never again be so new, so fresh, and full of undiscovered treasures. It is difficult because you will stumble and make mistakes. Like a baby just coming upon words, you have to find each one anew. When you don't remember the words, you have the opportunity to tumble through a crack in your mind's control. Whatever you find through that crack is sure to be much more interesting and vibrant than the bland success of getting it right. Because the places you forget are inviting you beyond your familiar patterns into a new experience of yourself in the poem. This is the gift of forgetting, one of the greatest treasures of the process, which I will explore in depth in the next chapter. The work in the second chamber is challenging at times. The poem can look like it is 3,000 miles long. Later, you may marvel at how short it actually is. Often, I have no idea how I will ever develop a relationship with all of that mileage, must, much less learn it by heart. Yet this is also the gift of the practice. The poem seems to go on forever because there is so much to discover within every phrase. World after world may be opening inside each line as you dig into the earth of your heart to plant the poem. Here is the period, perhaps a phase in any partnership, whether with a poem or a person, when falling in love is transmuted into a real relationship. The young love, the immediate gratification, the sudden rushes of affection, the unexpected delights and insights all must give way to the conscious navigation of the connection between you and your partner. Rilke expresses it this way, Just as the winged energy of delight carried you over many chasms early on, now raise the daringly imagined arc holding up the astounding bridges. 
Perhaps the winged energy of delight is a portrait of Eros, the wild child Cupid whose love-dipped arrow sends its victim into a swoon of infatuation. The serum lasts just long enough to get you over the threshold of a relationship, but not longer. Have you ever watched the life drain out of romantic connection after the initial falling in love phase? To take the next step to foster an enduring relationship seems to require the effort of bridge building. Rilke goes on to say that this is not willful striving. It is the necessary hard work of building a soul connection. Most of this work takes place in the second chamber. Notice everything you can about the lines that defy easy entry into your memory and everything you can about what they call forth in you. Mary Oliver, in her poem The Summer Day, talks about this quality of focus. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. The prayer of the second chamber is paying attention. It's a bit like grafting the poem into your memory. I've watched a gardener, when grafting a branch of one apple tree to the trunk of another, scrape at both surfaces to make them porous to each other. So, too, I scratch at the surface of the poem by digging into the particulars of its sound and meaning, and at the same time, I scratch at the surface of my own psyche by seeking personal connections with each phrase. It is as if through this gardening the poem and I become open to each other. In reality, though, it is only about me opening to the poem. The poem has always been open to me. I remember learning one of my favorite poems of all time, Pablo Neruda's Poetry, which you can find following chapter one. The beginning slipped easily into my memory, but every time I said the poem, I unconsciously skipped the lines and I made my own way, deciphering that fire when I finally noticed my mission. I realized it was because these words made me very uncomfortable. In the last chapter, I spoke about the yoga of poetry and how a poem can stretch you beyond the limitations you draw around your sense of who you are. Sometimes you sign on consciously for the stretching, and sometimes the poem can surprise you by taking you where you do not wish to go. This can happen at any point in your relationship with the poem, as you first begin to read it, as you take it into your memory, or as you speak it aloud. For me, the second chamber is usually where I encounter the most opportunities to stretch. This was certainly the case with Neruda's poem. At times like this, curiosity is a valuable asset. The curi when curiosity overrides discomfort, my greatest learning happens. Through curiosity, I can consciously turn toward what is unsettling me instead of unconsciously turning away. And when I do, my world is instantly bigger. I uncover new dimensions of myself in the poem. Not only that, but the very discomfort I am feeling becomes the grafting compound that cleaves the lines to my memory. This part of Naruto's poem points directly at one of my life's greatest struggles, writing. Though I treasure every aspect of taking already written poems to heart, writing them does not come easily. When I was a child, I studied stream, a steady stream of poetry poured out of me unselfconsciously. But in my adult years, I have toiled to decipher that fire frozen between my longing to articulate the ineffable and my perfectionism. As I meditated on the words, I noticed that even the rhythm in this beautiful translation by Alistair Reed reflects the uncertainty and effort of the task. The first few lines have a lilting regular rhythm, a beautiful lopping, loping stride, and something started in my soul, fever or forgotten wings. When suddenly the rhythm staggers, stumbles, and uh, becomes complex and chaotic, 
and I made my own way deciphering that fire. This is an example of how the sound of a poem can carry emotional meanings that bypass the mind. The drumbeats of the lion are jostling each other inside my body, conveying messages that can never be put into words. In these lines, Neruda gives, guides me down a path I have only walked unsteadily. It is the path of writing that first faint line, no matter how nonsensical it might be, and seeing the heavens unfastened and open in celebration. It is as if the poet takes my broken, uncertain, forgotten wing under his own and reminds me how to fly. This is one of the most generous medicines a poem has to offer, the chance to enter its particular stream and let it carry you beyond the circumference of your individual reach. In spite of the way my mind bucks and frets against the discipline of the second chamber, the actual time spent there is only a small part of the whole spectrum of my relationship with the poem. Working with about 14 lines, a sonnet, for instance, may take an hour or less. Sometimes in my workshops, we'll take 20 minutes to go out outdoors and learn as much of a chosen poem as possible. I've been stupefied when some students have returned with a two-page poem well ensconced in the third chamber of memory. Although such a feat is not within everyone's reach, most people are quite startled when they discover how quickly they can plant a poem firmly in their memory. But it will not stay there, however well planted, unless you feed and water it. Like a seedling, it needs special attention in the first few days. If I work with a poem tonight and don't reconnect with it tomorrow morning, it will surely disappear from my memory bank. I need to speak it first thing in the morning, even before getting out of bed. I need to remember it last thing at night as I fall asleep. I need to say it while I'm driving, while I'm brushing my teeth, taking a shower, going for a hike. I need to say the poem several times a day over several days before it is firmly rooted within me. The moments before you fall asleep and when you first wake up are excellent times to invoke the poem you are learning. It seems that when the brain is less cohered, the poem floats into awareness with more ease. Some memory researchers think that sleep is an essential component of memory. Indeed, I have sometimes found a poem inexplicably more whole and sure upon waking than it was the night before. More often, the opposite is true, as it was with my friend Hannah. Even so, it is always relatively easy to reinstall it on my hard drive the next day. You'll find that parts of your poem slide between the second and third chambers for the first few days. How can you tell the difference? When a line is in the second chamber, Remembering it can feel, in the words of Rilke, like pushing through solid rock. In the third chamber, even though you may not know if the next phrase will show up, there is a sense of flow of being carried by the poem. You don't have to consciously plumb the layers of your psyche for the connection to each word. It arises on its own. The third chamber of memory, the wave. Now that the poem is learned by heart, it is flowing. This can be a wonderful time in your relationship. The poem is rising to meet you. You are diving to find it. Nothing is taken for granted. Like a young romance, there is no certainty, no routine, no habitual way of being together. Insights blossom spontaneously each time you and the poem meet. Here, even though you know the words, you have to find them again every time you say them. You cannot rest in the known for long. The next phrase does not arise unless you live toward it, completely igniting it from your direct personal experience of the line before. 
there's a sense of living on the edge because you don't know if the next line will emerge from your memory or leave you stranded, and it doesn't come unless you're completely present. But the poem's wave motion is in you, the flow of the language, the cadence, the contours of the terrain. Like knowing almost all of a song, the rhythm and the sense continue even when memory fails to come up with the words. How many times have I found myself singing with gusto? I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad. Da, dee, da, 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 da. In this phase, I like to work with the poem when I'm in motion. One of my most one of my favorite practices is to speak the freshly learned poems while walking or working out, often to music. You might think that this would make it more difficult to concentrate. However, there is some surprising benefit to distracting the busy mind. The sound and the movement so overwhelm the mind that it lets go, releases, and allows the poem to slip in and take root. At times, I'll even work with fairly loud dance music. The rhythms within the music help me to clear drum beats in the poem I might not have noticed. And the centrality of the music grips my attention so the poem can slip in free of the hypervigilant surveillance of my mind. When I decided to learn Dr. Seuss's Happy Birthday to You, my friends at the gym used to get a kick out of seeing me arrange the pages on the magazine rack of the step machine, put in my earphones, and begin climbing, my lips moving a mile a minute with words like, and the drummers who drum and the strummers who strum are followed by zummers who come as they zum. Some of the most ecstatic moments I've known have come when I am alone in nature speaking a poem that is in the third chamber of memory. The Thunder, Perfect Mind, is a Gnostic gospel written around 8300 in the voice of the Divine Feminine. In a translation by James Hirschfield, it is one of the most powerful pieces of writing I have ever encountered. Many lines of the long poem bring together two opposites, resulting in a scripture that defies duality and seems to be the very voice of the one behind the many. I'm the first and the last. I'm the honored one and the scorned. I'm the whore and the holy one. I'm the wife and the virgin. It seemed only right to learn this vast and sacred poem in a place that reflected equal glory. I chose the expanse of Kehoe Beach near where I was living in Northern California. On many afternoons in the spring of 2002, I would follow the sandy path through lupine-scented air to where the sea exploded onto the shore. The cries of the gulls were barely audible over the ocean's drum roll. I tossed my voice to the wind and waves. I am strength and I am fear. I am war and I am peace. If I did not make an absolutely personal connection with each phrase, the words would disappear from my mind. That connection might be as simple as the hush of heat in my chest that comes when I fear a fierce truth. Why? You love... Why? Who? You... <laughs> Why, you who love me, do you hate me, and hate those who love me? Or as complex as the memory of seeing a loved one convicted of a crime, I am the condemnation, condemnation and the acquittal. To this day, when I return to Kehoe, I can still hear fragments of the thunder whispering in the wind. Sometimes, even when the poem has been in the third chamber for a long time, you might forget a word. Out of the blue, it can disappear. Even after months of saying the poem by heart, these unexpectedly, unexpectedly dropped words show you that there are still mysteries to unfold between you and this poem. The most important practice for rooting your poem in the third chamber is speaking it to other people. You can know it perfectly in the shower. You can sing it to the trees on your favorite path through the woods. You can speak it in the car no matter what kind of music is playing on the radio. 
Yet when you go to offer to another human being, whole chunks of it flee. For this reason, it is very important that you find as many occasions as possible to speak it to others. Offer it to your friends at lunch. Share it with colleagues at work. Find unexpected moments to slip it into conversations over the phone. Discover how the poem lives in the space between you and another person. A poem is a conduit of relationship. It gives language to dimensions of our inner lives that most of us rarely talk about. To speak Rilke's line, I am too alone in the world and not alone enough, can plunge you and your listener into a potent shared knowing of a private and yet universal experience. Saying these words aloud to another person can feel unexpectedly vulnerable, but it is a vulnerability to be celebrated, a subject I explore further in chapters 7 and 8. The Fourth Chamber of Memory, Surrender. In the fourth chamber, the poem starts singing to you. Now that it is a part of you, its words and rhythms unfurl effortlessly and sometimes even mindlessly with every breath. This often gives rise to both wonder and dismay. It can be alarming to hear your own voice reciting Rilke's magnificent first elegy as if it were Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But it can be wondrous in a tense moment to go into that chamber and find the perfect lines telling you exactly what you need to hear. For us, there's only the trying. T.S. Eliot reminds me as I worry over how my new CD will be reviewed. The rest is not your business. The fourth chamber is where rote memory dwells. This is where your ABCs, nursery rhymes, and the Pledge of Allegiance all came to rest, in most cases, indelibly. There are poems that are so deeply engraved in my fourth chamber that I can speak them out loud while writing an email or thinking about what I want for dinner without even listening to what my own voice is saying. It is very different from the third chamber where I have no choice but to be awake to every line. There I can't remember the next line if I'm not finding the connection inside me, feeling, feeling specifically how these words move me emotionally, physically, and mentally. The fourth chamber offers another task. Here I have to choose to wake myself up. I have to choose to listen to the words because they show up whether I am present or not. Actors often confront the challenge of saying the same lines over and over, sometimes eight or nine times a week for months on end. There are myriad books and acting techniques that speak of how to keep lines fresh night after night. Often they suggest some kind of creative invention, actively giving the words in different inflections, making up a new subtext for the scene, or imagining different circumstances preceding it. While you could use these approaches with a poem in the fourth chamber, my approach is very different. Learning and speaking a poem is not acting. It is less about invention than about surrender. Surrender is the deepest teaching of the fourth chamber, Trust that all the active learning of the previous chambers has instilled layer upon layer of rich and personal relationship with the poem. Now allow yourself to be, to be carried by it. In the words of D.H. Lawrence, If only most lovely of all, I yield myself and am borrowed by that fine, fine wind. Let yourself be borrowed by the poem, or perhaps more accurately, by the voice within you that the poem calls forth. So rather than making an effort to invent a new tone of voice or working to find new layers of meaning, let the poem simply wash over you. Lean back and ride the waves of its rhythm. Let your voice sink into the textures of the words. Open your inner and outer ears and let the poem sing to you. Listen to your own voice and the sounds of your surroundings. 
Every moment is fresh if you are awake and listening. Even if you've spoken the exact same words a thousand times, this moment has never happened before. You have never been exactly who you are right now. You have never spoken to this listener, whether that listener is you or someone else. You've never brought this poem into this particular circumstance. New layers of meaning and inspiration can open on their own every time you say the words. There's no need to create newness. Newness is constantly creating itself. The beauty of this phrase is that your poem has already become a part of your body. Think, for instance, of your hands. They automatically hit the computer keys, brush a hair from your eye, or lift the fork without your thinking about them. Then one day, you listen. You happen to notice the extraordinary miracles on the ends of your arms, the intricacy of veins, an age spot you never saw before, the grace of the fingers tapping out the letters. When a poem is flowing out of you without conscious effort, a miracle can occur. The poem may start talking to you in your own voice. You may be less than the speaker than the listener. You may hear the poem say new things. You may hear your own voice do things you've never known it to do. Borrowed by the poem, your voice can move in ways that can that completely surprise you. The poems you have in the fourth chamber of your memory provide a natural home entertainment system. Stuff in tra- tra- stuck in traffic, waiting in the checkout line, or driving long distances, you can go into your archive and lose yourself in the words of your favorite poets. During the years of her childhood when she was mute, Maya Angelou worked dozens of poems into the fourth chamber of her memory. I don't say I understood them, but I had them, she reported in an interview. I just put them all in the machine, and when I was walking down the dirt roads of this little hamlet in Arkansas, it was like I had a computer. I could punch up, say, Rudyard Kipling, and just have it recite itself to me in my brain. As the poems recite themselves, they may touch you in new ways every time you reconnect with them, even after many years. I remember inadvertently rediscovering a poem by Rilke that I had learned by heart at least five years later. Though it had lived in the fourth chamber of my memory and I had spoken it frequently, I suddenly heard the words, summoned by a crisis in my life, in a completely fresh way. I was in the throes of a new relationship. My partner and I had been carried by the ease and free play of infatuation for about three months, but now this was quickly changing. Disagreements and conflicting needs were snagging the flow of our communications. Each of us was feeling hurt and unseen by the other. Every day I fantasized about storming out, my pride in my teeth and slamming some invisible door. In a moment of pure synchronicity, one of my students arrived for her session holding an index card with a sonnet on it. She had carried the poem around in her wallet for years, frequently reading it to herself or any companion who seemed in need of its wisdom. Now she wanted to learn it by heart. The poem which I quoted earlier in the description of the second chamber was a sonnet by Rook, translated by Robert Bly, which begins, Just as the winged energy of delight. Until then, I had thought this work described the creative process. It speaks of the transition point when the initial rush of inspiration turns into the conscious work of creation. Now I I heard it soundly confronting me about my love relationship. I blushed like a scolded child. Pushing my feelings aside, I focused on teaching. 
I asked her to read the poem to me over and over, allowing her voice to change with whatever feelings, sensations, or impulses arose. Then I took the card she was reading from and told her to continue. Of course, she froze instantly, as if I had suddenly taken the training wheels off her first bicycle. But soon she found she actually remembered much of the poem. Each time she forgot a line, we worked together to find out how those words were stretching her into a deeper knowledge of both herself and the poem. Within about 15 minutes, she was able to remember without stumbling. As often happens when I am teaching, at that point we started alternating. She spoke the poem to me, and then I spoke it to her, and so on. As I listened to my own voice carrying the, un the familiar words, I heard them in an entirely new way. I couldn't avoid hearing the poem's message to me. Denser and denser the pattern becomes, I heard my voice say, being carried along is not enough. I was flooded by a stream of images, painful scenes in my current relationship and veritable slideshow of similar struggles from the past filled my inner screen. These conflicts I was facing were not new. They were the deep grooves of patterns I had repeated since childhood. After realizing this, there was no way I could continue to blame my partner for our difficulties. The veil of my pride was pierced. The poem was challenging me. Now raise the daringly imagined arch, holding up the astounding bridges. It was time to do the hard work of bridge building across the seemingly impossible chasm between us. Even though I was supposed to be the teacher, my eyes brimmed with tears. I fell silent, stunned by the impact of the message. My students sensed the power of the moment and continued to repeat the poem softly. A deep tenderness and wisdom filled her voice. Even after, she too became silent. The last stanza kept reverberating inside me. Take your well-disciplined strengths and stretch them between two opposing poles, because inside human beings is where God learns. I knew this poem so well I could almost recite it backwards, but I had no idea it had a hidden door that could open into an entirely new country of meaning when I most needed it. This is my experience with every poem that lives in the fourth chamber of my memory. Yet each time that door opens, it seems like a miracle. Recently, as I prepared for a series of public events celebrating the release of my CD, Only Breath, I was horrified to realize that each night of the tour, I would need to speak exactly the same poems. Usually, these public offerings, I vary the program each night. I even leave some of it unplanned to make room for spontaneity. But for these series, my collaborator, Jamie Sieber, and I felt it was important to introduce audiences to the poem I featured on the CD. Not only would I have to limit myself to only those 12 poems, but they happened to be poems that I had just spent over a year repeating incessantly in the process of making the recording. At first, I balked. I loved the surprise element that goes with not knowing what poem is coming next. I missed the way the musicians and I had, listened, had to listen to each other when we were working with an unfamiliar poem. I missed choosing the poems to fit the audience or my mood or whatever Jamie might spontaneously improvise on her cello. But then the poem started taking me places I had never been. In concert after concert, my voice found new nooks and crannies of sound. My breath discovered new rhythms. My whole body began to surrender to being carried on the currents of the poems. I had never experienced such freedom from inhibition, and it was a freedom born from confinement. Speaking the same words over and over, going deeper instead of wider, 
surrendering instead of innovating, letting the poems carry me. The Hidden Tape Recorder As I've said before, the poem lodged in the fourth chamber will probably be yours for life. Although a few words and phrases may crumble with time and lack of use, they usually are easy to return to memory. In fact, it turns out that whatever is stored in the fourth chamber is the last to dissolve as the mind falls away, even in the face of extreme brain trauma, stroke, and dementia. Medical research has documented that as the functions of the brain deteriorate or are interrupted by aging, illness, or injury, this domain of memory persists. Many, of the st many are the stories of patients who cannot talk but are able to recite poems and nursery rhymes. Dr. Bonnie Gintis tells of caring for a patient who was mute because of a severe stroke. He had been in the hospital for weeks, barely able to point at an alphabet board to get his needs met. One day, a new patient moved into the next room with a portable tape player. Soundtracks from Broadway musicals began to blare through the wall. The nursing staff was concerned for the mute patient and asked him if the music was disturbing him. Instead of pointing at the alphabet board, he burst into song, articulating perfectly the words of Bali High, which was wafting into the room from the tape of South Pacific playing next door. The nurses were shocked. One of them paged Dr. Gintis. By the time she reached her patient's bedside, he had finished singing Bali High without missing a word and had started in on the next song coming through the wall. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. A small crowd of hospital staff had gathered around him in glee, celebrating his newfound ability to express himself. Later that day, he startled the nursing staff again even more when his neighbor put on the tape of South Pacific again and they heard him singing loudly, Can I have some water to the tune of the chorus of Bali High. It turned out his brain could deliver new words as long as they fit in the well-worn tracks of the patterns of the song. In Tilly Olson's famous short story, Tell Me a Riddle, Eva, who has become embittered and mono monosyllabic in her old age, undergoes a transformation in the final stages of her cancer. Poems, famous speeches, and songs begin to bubble out of her irrepressibly a continuous stream. Her husband is jealous of these words she never shared with him. It helps, Mrs. Philosopher, words from books. It helps. And it seemed to him that for 70 years, she had hidden a tape recorder, infinitely microscopic within her, that it had coiled infinite mile on mile, trapping every song, every melody, every word read, heard, or spoken. We all have that hidden tape recorder within us. Dr. Raymond Moody, known for his research on near-death experiences, has documented several hundred cases in which people have been heard to recite poetry just before they die. Often these are people like Eva, who have never shown an interest in poetry before. Yet somewhere in the fourth chamber of their memory, poems that have been learned many decades earlier are waiting to be called forth at the most crucial moment. Moody has dubbed this the swan song phenomenon, an analogy that originated with Socrates. According to an ancient Greek folk belief, a swan sings its most beautiful song just before it dies. Socrates, who had, known who had been known for his disparagement of poets during his lifetime, began writing and reciting poetry as he waited for his execution. He likened his impulse to that of the swan, an outburst of poetry in anticipation of a beautiful afterlife. 
The ancients thought that swan songs attuned the souls of the dying to the higher states of existence. They were, a they were about to enter, Moody relates. He cites how Pythagoras' students, as well as members of at least one Gnostic sect, were instructed to write poems that they called passwords, which they would recite at the moment of death to ease the transition. He also compares the phenomenon to the shaman songs of many indigenous traditions in which lengthy verses carry the practitioner to and from the spirit world. As my friend Hannah's mother was dying, a stream of exquisite German poetry as well as lyrics from many of Wagner's operas poured almost instantly from her lips. Finally, her husband's judgment no longer mattered and the poems welled to the surface unchecked. It seemed to Hannah, as she sat by her mother's bedside, that the verses emerging from the hidden tape recorder made up a path of words that her mother was walking poem by poem to the other side. Thanks to this phenomenon, when my grandmother was dying, I had many tender moments with her. I had never been very good at generating conversation between us. Though she was always interested in my adventures, we didn't seem to have a lot in common. But as she lost the capacity to talk, our relationship bloomed. Others felt awkward with her, not knowing how to make contact. But I was finally able to converse in a language I was comfortable with. I talked with her through touch, rhythm, and rhyme. As I stroked her arms or massaged her feet, she would recite numbers 1 to 6, then 17, 18, 19, then repeat them like a chant. Together we'd sing, sometimes we'd sing together, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Until I sang the song with my 98-year-old grandmother, her body pumping as if paddling toward the veil between the worlds, I never heard its wisdom. It's true, isn't it, Nana? I would ask her, life is the dream. Where you're going, maybe that's the reality. She didn't answer, but I felt her press her cheek into my hand as we began the song again. Sometimes, when I think of my own death, I like to imagine a few lines of T.S. Eliot or Emily Dickinson trickling out of the side of my mouth as I go. My, ma my Nana like the trees. My Nana, like the trees, was well-dressed in her time. Now she barely wears her skin, arms and feet and fluids caving in and breathes so thin you can see to the other side. Ancient fingers curl out her chin and tumble off the edge of vagrant words into the season like the leaves, retiring from green to blaze a naked moment then careen to the earth. My Nana counts at the edge of time as thoughts melt into numbers one to six, 17, 18, 19, then begin again, like the ancient monk whose measured chant at once keeps time and shatters it. My nana chants in the autumn light, numbers pumped from a distant past, fall from her breath like leaves from the tree of a branching soul that reaches wider, higher still. Even as the stuff of time is strewn, strewn below or hangs translucent from the bone with no wish but to journey down on gravity's verging tide, and something brilliant, barely known, rises through the naked trees. Kim Rosen